Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode one for 2017, and today's date is Friday the 3rd of February. And Leon, we're talking to Ash Shilkin of uh, Chimp Change. Ash Shilkin is the founder and MD of Chimp Change, and he's going to be talking to us all about the development of this exciting new digital blank banking platform. There's a lot happening in the banks underneath in their technology and things like that. It's something to watch out for. And after that, we've got a fascinating interview with Saul Eslake, uh, Master Economist. That's right. And he's going to be talking to us all about the economic impact of Donald Trump. And I really suggest people listen to this because this one's a, an absolutely fascinating conversation. Very sharp indeed it is. And I might say to you all out there, thanks for being with us for another year's series, we hope. Uh, we're back and uh, the outlook's pretty good. That's right. And uh, it's terrific to be back. Okay. Now let's talk to uh, Ash Shulkin. ChimpChange is a banking platform. Uh, tell me about it. How does it work? So ChimpChange is a mobile bank account, and you can think of it like um, a regular transactional account or regular checking account that you might already have uh, with a, a Westpac or a NAB or a Chase Bank or Wells Fargo as we are solely operating over here in the US. But what we've sought to do is to deliver two value propositions to our customers. The first one is pretty simple and it's based on price. There are tens of millions of people here in the US that are still paying $15 a month in monthly account keeping fees. And these are people who aren't meeting the minimum thresholds to get a free account. And that's typically $1,500 a month in monthly deposit or a minimum account balance of $1,500 on a daily basis. So you've got tens of millions of people who can't afford to be paying fees, who are paying fees as high as $15 a month, in fact, higher, um, and getting hit with overdraft fees. So the first value proposition is, can we provide a bank account that comes with a MasterCard, free ATM withdrawals and an account number and a routing number and all of those usual and normal things to um, millions of people uh, for, for free or at a very low cost um, who would otherwise be paying a fee. But that's not enough in and of itself. The second value proposition, which we're in the process of rolling out, is uh, creating innovative fintech tools to make bank accounts more useful for people. And that's why I created Chimp Change was for those two value propositions. One, why are people still paying for a bank account? And that's largely a US-based um, issue. But secondly, it, it is more of a global observation that my bank account today is by and large the same as it was 20 years ago. And we've had technology and innovation touch nearly everything else in every other sector. Um, but why hasn't it given us a material improvement on the way we do our daily banking? So we're in the process of rolling out a whole suite of tools, which I'd love to tell you about, which help people to understand how they're spending their money better, to set budgets and to be proactive to help change people's purchasing decisions before they make the purchase as opposed to once it's too late and ultimately then provide savings products to help people save to get ahead in life. Right. Well, tell us about these tools. So the first tool um, is one that was actually our most requested 
uh, feature. When we surveyed our customers, we, we launched in August of 2015 and we had a marketing campaign that went viral and we acquired, uh, today we have over 100,000 customers. And so we surveyed our customers and said, what do you want to see next? And the two highest requested features, one is a savings account and, and, this, and the other one is photo check deposit. And again, that's a very US specific dynamic whereby it's still largely a check-based economy. So we built in some technology into our application so that you can take a photo of a check and it's cleared in real time. Now, a lot of our customers fall into what we call the underbanked uh, demographic. And these are people who will choose not to have a bank account because they're the ones who would be getting hit with $15 a month in account keeping fees. Uh, just before you go on, I take it these people are millennials, for example, who are unbanked or underbanked and uh, they don't visit bank branches. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's millennials who are... Uh, uh, 67% of our customer base and there's a lot of underbanked millennials and then there are some underbanked you know, Gen Xs and, and uh, baby boomers as well. But yes, a, a, a huge portion of our customer base are millennials and some of those are underbanked. So the life that they live is that they will get paid via a check. They'll go to a CD check cashing location and pay 5 to 15% of that check value to get their cash on the spot. So this feature that we've introduced is that you can take a photo of the check in the comfort of your own home, cleared in real time into your account, uh, and the fee is as low as 2%. It can be free if you're happy to wait for your money, but 2% for real-time clearance. That's one of, in my opinion, a useful but lesser exciting feature that we're rolling out. Um, the one that I'm most excited about is our spending insights. The way this works is that every time you make a purchase on your Chimp Change debit MasterCard, um, which is a, a MasterCard just like your Westpac or your NAB, it's accepted anywhere in the world, you can get cash out at ATMs. We go and auto-categorize what that purchase is. So if you went and bought a coffee, we would pick up that it's a coffee and we would put it into a coffee category. Uh, restaurants, um, petrol, uh, home costs, groceries, you name it, we'll it. And then we display in a very user-friendly uh, graphical interface uh, those categories. So you can glance at it and it it brings to life how you actually spend your money. And I don't know about you, but up until I used this feature, and I've been using it for a couple of months now, I couldn't tell you how much I spend at the supermarket every month. I couldn't tell you what I spend at restaurants or on coffee every month. And it, to manage my money, that's the first step. I really need to understand where I'm spending so I know where I can put the brakes on. Um, so one example is I realized that I was spending too much on eating out each month. So the next step is we're releasing a budgeting application whereby you can set budgets that says, look, I only want to spend $400 a month on eating out. And the proactivity comes by us sending out alert notifications as you start to get close to hitting that budget. So a lot of budgeting applications will tell you in retrospect that you blew your budget. But the way that we're building it is that as you're approaching, we'll send you a notification that says, are you sure you want to go and have that meal uh, out at the restaurant or, or maybe you should go to the supermarket and, and eat in home because you're about to um, hit that budget limit. Then the, the next feature that we're rolling out, which 
um, is a natural progression of the spending insights and the budgeting is a savings account. And we'll be offering a roundup savings account whereby each time you make a purchase on your Chimp Change MasterCard, it'll round it up to the nearest dollar and it'll put the difference between your purchase and that next dollar into a savings account, um, which can help you to put aside something for a rainy day. And, and in the US, an amazing statistic is that 50% of the US population or less saved, period, for an emergency, let alone a holiday or a new car. Um, the final feature that we actually already do have in place is an easy way to send money to your friends. And this is a P2P payment system whereby you can send money to other Chimp Change customers. Uh, a unique twist that we have on it is that you can attach media to the money that you send. So you could have your family singing happy birthday, send that message with the money, and it's saved as your official transaction history for the next seven years. And these are the sort of bells and whistles um, that millennials do like, which is why we have been very successful in targeting that audience. That's fascinating. I mean, it actually creates a unique position for you in what is a very competitive space. I agree. Um, and it, when I look at the incumbents uh, who are the over here in the US, you're talking about Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, City. Uh, they have the, the lion's share of the market. They charge high fees and they fail to innovate. Uh, the only innovation that they've ever really done is how can we charge more fees in a sneaky kind of way? And overdraft fees are a great example of that. Overdraft fees that uh, they will let you go into overdraft, charge you a minimum $35 fee every day until that overdraft is cleared. And if you think about that as a, a loan product, that becomes thousands of percent of interest um, that, that's owed to the bank. So we're, we're really approaching things differently. Um, we're trying to build our business in a way that is helping people um, whilst uh, our company makes money at the same time. We are not a not-for-profit, but there is a way that you can generate revenue, generate gross margin, not at the customer's expense, help them to understand their money better and help them to save to get ahead in life. Final question. I mean, your business is currently focused on the US, but you'd be eyeing offshore expansion, wouldn't you? We are in a moderate sense. Uh, in one way, there's 330 million people in America and it's a huge opportunity, absolutely huge. And we, we've barely scraped the surface. The banks are far behind over here. Um, we're really well positioned on the front of the wave to capture some great market share as the market generally migrates towards digital banking, which it is. However, our product does have uh, a practical application in most other markets. Uh, sometimes there's a bit of a, a tweak on the value proposition. So the first value proposition that we offer over here in terms of price is not necessarily a strong value proposition in Australia, for instance, but some of these money management fintech type tools that we've built are um, and there's ways that we can craft our business model um, more towards savings we could offer lending products to our customers uh, that really make it a win-win for the customer and also for us as a company ash shulkin it's been fascinating talk to you thank you so much for your time thank you my pleasure well as we said the uh, banks are really into technology that's right now this is actually going to change banking completely i think yeah, it, it, in fact, the whole idea of the digitization of money 
is causing all sorts of ructions. Now, Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, last week the stock market reached record highs uh, and investors were saying we love Donald Trump and uh, this week it's, it's slumped and the dollar has slumped. Uh, what's your reading of this? I think that reflects a reassessment on the part of investors of the very sanguine view they'd taken since the outcome of the presidential election in November last year as to how all of what Donald Trump portends would impact on the economy and on corporate profits. Now, let me take a step back first to say that in the immediate aftermath of the election campaign, financial markets tended to see the outcome, which they hadn't predicted, as being like a glass that's more than half full. They worked on the assumption that of the many things that Donald Trump said during the campaign that he would do if elected, he would only do the things that markets believe will enhance the US economy's growth rate, such as cutting taxes for high-income households and corporates and increasing spending on the military and infrastructure. Now, put to one side whether those policies actually would have that effect, markets believed that he would implement those things and that in an echo of what markets believe Ronald Reagan's similar economic policies achieved, proceeded to mark share prices up on the basis that those policies would produce faster economic growth, which would be reflected in higher corporate profits. And in addition, they thought that some of Mr. Trump's policies with regards, for example, to unwinding financial regulations or reducing regulation of pharmaceutical companies and the like would provide specific benefits for those areas of the stock market as well. Financial markets further believed that Donald Trump wouldn't do the things that he had mentioned during the election campaign that markets believe would be harmful to economic growth, such as starting a trade war with some of the US's most important trading partners, China and Mexico among them, and uh, restricting immigration. Right up until last week, those were the beliefs that informed market reactions, and they were to some extent backed up by other surveys showing that consumer confidence, small business sentiment, and even sentiment among CEOs had improved quite significantly in the aftermath of the election. So there was at least some other basis for the beliefs on which financial markets have been operating. But then we had Donald Trump's first week or now 10 days in office. And what's become clear is that he's going to do most of the things that he said he would do during the election campaign, including some of the things that markets had perhaps a little conveniently assumed that he either wouldn't do or wouldn't be allowed by the Republican-controlled Congress to do. Uh, and so we've seen one of his first actions was to pull the US out of the trade partnership for the Pacific. We've seen him announce a border wall with Mexico and some parts of his administration proposing a tax on imports from Mexico in order, so they say, to make the Mexicans pay for it. And most recently, we've seen measures designed to restrict immigration to the United States that a number of high-profile companies have said would be damaging to their business. In addition to that, we've seen 
a rather unusual way of operating for the Trump administration, with key policy announcements being made on Twitter, a very large number by comparison with previous administrations of decisions being implemented by executive order, and some rather strange personnel decisions being made as well. All of those may have given investors pause for thought as to whether the assumptions on which they've been operating since last year's election about what the incoming administration would and wouldn't seek to do and what impact all of that would have on the economy, uh, maybe some of those assumptions are now being examined more closely. And I think that's been most clearly apparent in the way that the US dollar has fallen back over the last few days after rising very strongly in the months immediately after the election outcome, and to some extent also in the uh, retreat in the stock market that we've seen over the course of the past week. Indeed, indeed. And and, uh, now you have a number of CEOs who are actually, uh, particularly from tech companies, are questioning his uh, executive order. And uh, a number of other CEOs, like uh, Jeff Immel from GE, are raising questions about it too. And it, it actually signals tensions with the business community. Uh, yes, in some ways it does. And it's worth remembering that this is a high-risk strategy for CEOs of large companies to pursue because Donald Trump has clearly signalled that he doesn't take dissent or disagreement very well and that people who do criticise any of his actions or criticise him personally do perhaps put their companies at risk of some kind of retribution, missing out on government contracts or some other kind of detriment that the administration might be able to inflict on them. Uh, It's worth noting as well, however, that while high-profile CEOs and much of the media that we read here in Australia have been very critical of the decisions that Mr Trump has made with regard for example, to immigration from the seven companies or seven countries on his blacklist, uh, these actions do appear to be very popular with a large proportion of the American public, and in particular with that proportion of the American public that put Mr. Trump into the White House, contrary to the expectations of uh, much of the media and financial market. So, uh, how do you see uh, markets performing over the next? four years with Trump in office? Well, I think it's still too early to make bold predictions or have any great confidence in predictions at this stage because the really major elements of Trump's platform are yet to be unveiled, let alone legislated. Let's remind ourselves of what those are. Uh, Mr Trump, when it comes to uh, budgetary policy, is proposing a significant increase in the US budget deficit as a result of cuts in personal income tax and corporate income taxes and increased spending on the military and, although it's not clear by how much, on infrastructure, part of Mr Trump's infrastructure plan appears to be tax breaks designed to induce private investors to spend more on infrastructure rather than having the US federal government or state and local governments spend more on infrastructure directly themselves. But all of that is very vague and short on specifics or detail at the moment. The 
thinking of stock market investors on all of that has thus far been that this echoes what the Reagan administration did in the 1980s when it also ran big budget deficits through a combination of tax cuts and increased military spending and US economic growth accelerated to an average of more than 4% per annum between 1983 and 1988. Now, what I think many observers are forgetting is that that pickup in US economic growth owed a lot not to the increased budget deficits on their own, but to a decline in US interest rates from over 17% at their peak in 1982 to about 6% at the end of President Reagan's second term. That's something that not only can't be repeated in current circumstances, but in fact, US interest rates are more likely to rise from current very low levels than to fall again. Second, Reagan's program began with an unemployment rate in the US of over 10%, and it fell to about 5% by the end of Reagan's term in office. Whereas today, the unemployment rate's already below 5%. And although there is obviously still some hidden unemployment as a result of the lingering effects of the recession that followed the financial crisis, even the extent of hidden unemployment has declined quite significantly over the last two or three years from where it was at the peak in 2012. So there isn't as much spare capacity in the labour market to absorb increased demand as there was during the Reagan years. And then third, during the Reagan years, the US working age population, people aged between 15 and 65, was growing at almost 1% per annum, whereas today it's growing at less than a quarter of a percent per annum, and that growth rate will slow over the four years of the current presidential term. So for a whole lot of reasons, I think it's not at all likely that even if Mr Trump's policies succeed in stimulating demand, that that demand will be met for the most part by increased US production or supply. It's more likely, I think, to be reflected in increased inflation or increased imports from abroad, leading to a worsening in the US current account deficit, which is something Donald Trump says he's pledged to reduce. So the other aspect of Trump's policies about which we know very little at the moment is the trade policies that he may pursue in office. Now, again, there are different schools of thought here. Some people regard his threats to impose very high tariffs on China and other countries that run surpluses with the United States as merely a negotiating tactic and he won't actually proceed with them if those countries do things that the Trump administration wants them to do. Others see Trump as genuinely believing what he said in his inaugural speech about protection providing prosperity and strength. As an economist, I don't buy that for a moment. Uh, protection in this context means, to me, protection in the context that the mafia uses it. It's something you pay to uh, avoid what the proponents of it say are bad things. The reality, which Australia's own experience bears out, is that tariffs are not something you make foreigners pay to get their goods into your country, but rather something you force your own consumers to pay in order to keep foreign goods and services out of the country. If Trump were to 
deliver on the specific trade policy promises that he made during the election campaign, then not only would that be, in my view, bad for US economic growth overall, but the adverse consequences of those policies would fall hardest on the lowest income households within the US economy, and in particular on those working households that voted for Trump in the greatest numbers during the election campaign. But as I say, uh, there's a lot of detail yet to be filled in with regard to those trade policies, and we don't know the extent to which Trump will actually seek to pursue them uh, once his administration turns its attention to the key elements of economic policy. Saul Leslie, thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's a pleasure. Thanks for having me once again. Thank you, Saul. So what do you think, Leon? Oh, I think that was just so astute. But it's also scary because uh, there's chaos everywhere. It's intruding on other people's um, politics and uh, it's shaking the world up in a un- very unfriendly way. It's, uh, people, uh, the, uh, it's the dinner party and barbecue conversation everywhere. That's right. Okay, Leon, now the news. What have we got? Well, Gary, while we're talking about Donald Trump, his executive order barring citizens from seven countries entering the US has inflamed tensions with business. The order bars nationals of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria and Yemen, including refugees, visiting scholars and even permanent American residents who happen to be abroad at work or on holidays from entering the US. Now, business leaders trying to maintain cross-border flows of people and goods that underpin commerce in the 21st century are seeing it shape up as a big fight. Business leaders have criticised it, include GE CEO Jeff Immelt, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, who says Trump's executive order had left him with, quote, deep concern, a heavy heart and resolute promise, and who has pledged to hire as many as 10,000 refugees over five years in 75 countries. Ludwig Willisch, the CEO of BMW of North America, and the chiefs of Google, Facebook, Apple, Lyft and Uber. And the fallout with the tech industry is particularly important given they're already at odds with Trump over net neutrality. All up, the companies have vowed to fight the order. Search engine Google has launched a $2 million, that's, four point, that's $2.6 million Aussie, crisis fund that can be matched dollar to dollar in donations from employees, totaling $4 million US dollars. The money will go to four organisations, the American Civil Liberties Union, American Immigrant Legal Resource Centre, International Rescue Committee and UNHCR. And meanwhile, the airlines have been caught totally unprepared by Trump's executive order and have been left overhauling staff rosters, including flight crew from Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria and Yemen, to see if they can put them onto other routes than the US. And then you've got Apple uh, CEO Tim Cook talking about suing. Yep, and boy, can they ever mount a big legal challenge here. They've got more money than the United States. That's right. And uh, of course, if he sues, he's going to get uh, the outfits like Microsoft and Google on board as well. They'd all come in, yes, for sure. And Elon Musk, for example. And as a result, stocks fell significantly in the Donald Trump post-election period following last week's share market rally to an all-time high. World stocks have recorded their biggest losses in six weeks in response to thousands taken to the airports to protest against Trump's travel ban on visa holders from Arab countries and pressure on the May government in Britain to cancel Trump's planned visit to the UK. The US dollar has fallen more than 2% in January and that's the worst start to the year for the greenbacks since 2006. And it looks like it's continuing down and the concerns of big business allied to growing public reactions arranging from disquiet to outrage and that's going to have a lot of effect when the his supporters in the boonies and the rust belt find that he can't bring back manufacturing in america that's going to have quite an implication i think 
But over all that, as the Financial Times reported this week, the man really to watch isn't so much Trump as um, his uh, far-right chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Very dangerous. Who has been talking about holy war for years back in his days at Breitbart. Absolutely. Now to Australia. And the Turnbull government is taking its 10-year plan to cut the tax rates for all businesses, large and small, to 25% to the Senate. The government will be looking for a Senate vote by the end of March. So far, the government only has enough support to legislate tax cuts for companies with annual turnover capped at $10 million. But it's hoping that plans by the British and US government to cut their tax rates might win the Senate crossbench over. Now, US President Donald Trump plans to cut the US corporate tax rate from 35% to 15%. Britain looks looking to reduce its rate to 17%. Now, the government introduced its legislation to the House of Reps late last year, but it chose not to put it to the Senate in the face of opposition from Labor and the Greens and only partial support from the Nick Xenophon team, allowing only 27.5% rate for all companies with a turnover of up to only 10 million dollars. Now the tax cut legislation will be put to the Senate when Parliament resumes on Tuesday next week and I have to say Gary the Senate will be on a tight deadline with four Senate sitting weeks before it rises on March 30 for a pre-budget break of five weeks. Now with One Nation and David Landhelm supporting the cuts the government will be looking to pick up eight Senate crossbench votes and that's going to be really tight and interesting to watch. Yeah, and all you need is one wild card in the middle of it and you've got a problem. This is why business leaders want the Turnbull government to compromise over company tax cuts. And they're saying instead of putting their tax cut legislation before the Senate next week, they're suggesting the government put up its first tranche, dropping the rate from 30% to 27.5% for small and medium-sized companies by mid-2019. And the tax relief for the bigger end of town can go into the government's platform in the lead-up to the next election. A re-elected coalition government could represent it to the next parliament. And writing in the Australian Financial Review, Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Innes Willock said a compromise would lock in an achievable near-term goal as a first step towards creating what he said would be a more competitive tax system. And that'd get a lot of support. I think so. Now, to the economy and Australian consumer confidence is lifted, but people are still not that optimistic about where the head economy is heading long term. The latest ANZ Roy Morgan Index shows confidence rose 0.9% to 118.1% in the week ending the 29th of January. And this was after the 1.9% fall last week and was primarily driven by a bounce of confidence in current financial and economic conditions. Now, on the plus side, households' views towards the their current finances were up 3.4%. Their views of economic conditions over the next 12 months jumped 5.4%. And that more than reversed a 2% fall last week and has brought the index to its highest level in eight weeks. But people are more downbeat about the economy's prospects further out. Their views of economic conditions over the next five years fell 3%. Views towards future finances were broadly flat at 0.2%. And the sub-index of whether now is a good time to buy a household item continued to unwind falling 0.4%. And that is a worry long term. In other news, though, and corresponding with that, business conditions have rebounded strongly in December, surging 11 points in December, according to the NAB, from six points in November, well above the long-term average. But the Australian economy, it says, continues to underperform. Now, the figure, as I said, is well above the long-term average, and sectors with the biggest improvement were in wholesale transport and utilities. And on the downside, manufacturing and retail continue to deteriorate, and NAB's labour market index also remains underwhelming. Yeah, and employment is a very big problem. On the figures, it doesn't look too bad, but nobody seems to know how inflated those figures are because of the very high rate of uh, part-time work that we have here. 
That's right. Now, interesting uh, report from Deloitte. Confidence among Australia's chief financial officers remains high, but they're entering 2017 more uncertain than ever, with 78% identifying above normal to very high levels of uncertainty. That's a record high for the survey. Confidence in the federal government's ability to respond effectively to economic uncertainty and implement its policy has taken a hit. The survey found that 24% One in four believe the federal government's response to economic uncertainty will be the biggest national issue likely to affect their company in 2017. 75%, three quarters of them, don't believe the government's proposed tax cuts will ever be legislated. And of the 25% that do, only 2.2% have confidence it'll be enacted in 2017. And just over half, or 53%, foresee a Trump presidency as having little to no impact on their companies, at least in the short term. Survey also revealed that 42% of CFOs expect interest rates to rise this year. And as a result of the uncertainty, CFOs are now getting more into scenario planning. And the most useful scenarios identified are unexpected interest rate rises, the continued rapid increase in innovation, global growth continuing to stagnate, a hard land in China and a housing price crash in Australia. All a bit worrying, isn't it? Now, an important news for business is the head of the Australian Council of Trade Unions has quit after five years in the top job, saying he wants to spend more time with his family. And in his shock resignation announced late Tuesday afternoon, the Secretary of the Union peak body, Dave Oliver, called for a new generation to take over the role. Now, there's no clear successor, but ACTU Vice President Sally McManus is expected to be a front-runner. McManus is a 45-year-old and energetic left-winger. She's a former Australian Services Union New South Wales Secretary, and she actually headed the union campaign during the 2016 federal election. Yeah, she cups the blame for the Medi-Scare problem. Now, Future Fund Chairman Peter Costello says the fund is now operating in a climate of higher risk. It's generated a return of 7.8% for the 12 months ending December 2016, growing to $125.66 billion. It's interesting, in his comments, without specifically mentioning the election of Donald Trump, Brexit or ultra-low interest rates, Costello said the fund's mandate was to achieve strong returns while avoiding excessive risks, while navigating what he called was uncertainty regarding global monetary policy and a range of geopolitical factors. Another important piece of news is the South Australian blackouts had little impact on Oz Minerals' copper and gold production. The miner confirmed its copper output target for 2017 and lifted its target for the next two years. Now, Adelaide-based Oz Minerals said production at its prominent hill mine in Southern Australia was disrupted in the second half of the year after the blackout cut power to the site which resulted in 15 days of lost production. Despite that, however, gold production of 32,205 ounces at Prominent Hill was 13% higher than the previous period, driven by higher head grade and higher recovery. At the same time, the company says it will prioritise copper production given its stronger margins, and it's forecasting copper production of 90,000 to 100,000 tonnes for 2019, and that's well up on the earlier estimate of 65,000 to 75,000 tonnes. Good outlook, isn't it? So uh, copper's going to be going all the go at uh, Oz Minerals. Yeah. Finally, German insurer Allianz is in informal talks about the potential acquisition of Australia's biggest insurance company, QBE Insurance. And German newspaper Handelsblatt reported that Allianz Chief Executive Oliver Bate met with QBE's Chief Executive John Neal before Christmas and has suggested an offer of $15 per share, which would value the company at $20 billion. That's going to be interesting to see if QBE passes into foreign ownership. QBE's had a pretty rough trot over the last few years. And Allianz has got a lot of money. And big trade in Australia, come to that. And, uh, And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. Next week, we've got a terrific interview with 
Mark Attard from uh, Centuro. And that'll be well worth listening to. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at Talking Biz or on Facebook. Take care and we'll see you next week.